I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Well, thank, thank you all very, very much for coming. I apologize for a couple of things. One is that I flew, for, I live in Afghanistan, I flew to the United States, and then I flew back here with the result that my brain is completely scrambled, like some sort of cocktail shaker, and I'm not quite sure what time I'm pretending it is at the moment. I'm also talking with a certain amount of uh, consternation because I was in a debate with the British ambassador to Afghanistan a few days ago, I can't even remember how many days ago now, two, three days ago. And uh, at the end of the debate, he came up to me and he called me a, a snake oil salesman, an ingrate and a hypocrite. <laughs> so this is the first time I've spoken about Afghanistan since then, and I'm trying to, trying to work out how to, uh, how to overcome this accusation. I am no great expert on Afghanistan. I have been living there for the last two and a half years, and I was there briefly at the end of 2001, beginning of 2002. And really, I'm, I'm here to try to share with you my questions, my anxieties about what we're doing there. Today, as many of you will know, the 100th British soldier was killed in Afghanistan. And we're coming now into the Paris Conference, which is the last in a series of incredibly elaborate, developed donor conferences, which started in Bonn when President Karzai was appointed at the end of 2001, went through Tokyo, then Berlin, then the London Conference in January 2006. And these are the vehicles by which the international community, this very grand word for the 65 countries that have troops or money on the ground in Afghanistan, enter into a compact, which is now the fashionable term of the Afghan government, in which they lay out what they're going to do, what they're going to provide for the Afghan government, and what the Afghan government in return is going to do. These result in these incredible documents. The current one is called the Afghan National Development Strategy. It's, I think, about 280 pages long. It begins with two pages of acronyms and even an Afghan uh, would hesitate to identify probably a single acronym in the document. And yet, within the community that I often live amongst in Kabul, the people working for the JCMB of the ANDS, or uh, the Joint Coordination Monitoring Body of the Interim Afghan National Development Strategy, these acronyms are very common parlance. Essentially, what we're going to be looking at, I suppose, in Paris, and what we're looking at today, is the question of why we're there. I was talking to a villager who lived near Kandahar, which is a very unstable area of southern Afghanistan. It's an area dominated, certainly in the rural parts, by a Taliban presence. And he said that his basic experiences of sitting in his village and watching Canadian soldiers roll up. And the people in his particular village are shooting at the soldiers. And the soldiers turn up in tanks, and they turn up in body armor. And he says to them, what are you doing here? And they say, we've come to build a girls' school. 
And he says, what do you mean? You've flown 10,000 miles to my village. You've turned up in a tank and body armor. And you say, you've come here to build a girls' school. This can't be true. You must have found some uranium or something. <laughs> so that question the villager is posing, I think, is pretty fundamental. You know, why are we in Afghanistan? What is it we think we're doing? At the beginning of 2002, in a room about this size with about this number of people, I was at a conference with Mary Robinson and the new Afghan finance minister and various others where they laid out what they thought they were doing. And the statement was from the Afghan finance minister, there is a consensus in Afghan society. Every Afghan is committed to a gender-sensitive, multi-ethnic, centralized state based on democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. At the time, it seemed quite difficult to work out how one would translate this into language which a headman in central Hazarajat would understand. And since then, essentially, the international community, going into Paris, explaining itself to its own voters, has a pretty simple balance book. On one side, its successes, which we're going to hear a lot about, I think, in the Paris conference, Education, it's true that there are four and a half million more children in school now than there were at the end of 2001, predominantly women, because of course the Taliban didn't allow women to go to school. Health, 85% increase in access to primary health care. Good central bank, a stable currency, a reasonably well-trained army, some good infrastructure projects a little bit of urban regeneration, and on the other side, the things that we failed in totally. Counter-narcotics, state building, governance, rule of law, civil society, training the police, trying, in fact, to create any notion that we have a credible, legitimate government, defeating the Taliban. The conclusion from this basic balance sheet of what we've done well at and what we've done badly at for the Paris conference is going to be we must pump more money into those failing areas. Pump more money into those areas because, of course, unless we get those things right, unless we get all those grand phrases from rule of law to governance to state building right, all the other stuff, the schools, the education, the roads, are not likely to be sustainable. Right? There's no point us pumping money into girls' schools if the Afghan government is so corrupt, discredited, and unable to hold the country together uh, that we either can't pay the teachers' salaries or they simply, as is happening now in provinces all the way around Kabul, get burnt to the ground. A CARE, major aid agency at the moment, has basically withdrawn from all the provinces south of Kabul where it used to operate, Ghazni, Wardak, Logar, because their girls' schools are just being burnt. And this is now happening to Afghan government schools as well. So conclusion will be, let's pump in more money. And in fact, when this problem began to emerge, which really became obvious to people, I think, about 2004, beginning of 2005, the conclusion of the international community was, let's put in more money, let's put in more troops. So over the country as a whole, we went from about 20,000 troops to where we are now, which is over 70,000 international foreign troops. And in the case of the British, we went from a situation in Helmand province in the south of Afghanistan where there were 200 troops to a situation now where we have 7,700. It's a 30-fold increase, nearly 40-fold increase in the last two years. And if you'd said to people, as I said at the beginning of 2005, why are you doing this? Why are you increasing the number of troops from 200 
to over 7,000, they would say, the people in this province, in every opinion poll, register massive dissatisfaction. They say there's no economic development, there's no security, there's no governance, the police are corrupt, the governor's corrupt, nothing's happening. Something must be done about it. And because of a generic tendency, which any of you who've worked in the international community must be aware of, to think that if we have a problem, we necessarily, whatever tools happen to be to hand, are the appropriate tools for the task. Well, of course, we had a military, and therefore we concluded that the best way of sorting this out would be to deploy 16 Air Assault Brigade, who are now back in there again. The result, two years onwards in that province, has been no improvement in economic development, no improvement in security, no improvement in governance, and instead the creation of an insurgency, an insurgency which barely existed at the beginning of 2005. Now, to be frank, there's a lot of controversy about this. A lot of people would say that this insurgency was not created by the troops. The insurgency was beginning to emerge before the troops were deployed. But certainly we've handed the Taliban quite an important card, a card of being able to say that they're fighting for Afghanistan and Islam against a foreign military occupation. My instinct, if we then move on to what we should be doing rather than a description of what's happening at the moment, is that we're making a mistake. Our mistake is to think that having identified the areas where we're failing from police training through to state building, that what we should do is simply pump more money into those failing areas, more troops into those failing areas. My guess is those areas are failing for fundamental structural reasons. It's not a coincidence. It's actually easier to build an army than a police force, easier to build an army than a police force because an army is a relatively contained organization. It, it sits in barracks. It has quite a strong esprit de corps, whereas a police force, in the end, comes down to two people manning a checkpoint outside a, a small town like Sangin in southern Helmand exposed to all the corruption and all the local politics involved in that. That it's easier to build a central bank than it is to build a functioning justice system. Partly because for a central bank we can bring in technical assistance, we can bring in foreign economists, we can bring in people who've worked in the World Bank for 20 years, they sit and they, they look at the money supply, they look at the figures and they can do something. A justice system is not like that, which is one of the reasons why the Italian government is being unfairly at the moment mocked for its inability to transform the Afghan justice system. When you're operating in a system, I've just been through this in the last three weeks in Kabul. We have a tenant currently uh, living, an American man uh, living in a building who hasn't paid rent for some time and who is in a fight with the landlady. It's not our property, it's the landlady's property. So she's trying to evict him. It's simply impossible for her or, or in fact, the American tent to conceive of going to the courts because the judge is simply bought by whoever pays the highest bribe. And even if you get put in prison, you'll be released within a day or two if you bribe the right person. Therefore, everything comes down to an astonishing informal system of mediation in which... When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. 
very rapidly because the mediation is being done by a village elder or a sub-district chief in this case, people start threatening to kill each other. So, justice sector difficult. And this is true for pretty much all the things down that side of the page. The reason why state building is difficult is because state building is not a technical problem like building a road. It's not an engineering challenge, which we can simply bring in consultants on. It's connected with history. It's connected with culture. It's connected with an entire narrative of national identity. My conclusion, therefore, is that we should be focusing 85% of our resources on the things that we know how to do and that we do well. The education, the health, the infrastructure construction. And if we want to continue to get involved in all this stuff called state building, we should do so with much less of our money, 15% of our money, and spread much more thinly because we don't know what we're doing there. It turns out that our big programs don't seem to work very well. We set up 300, 400 million dollar programs. We call them rule of law. And they're absurd. So again, another room this size, again this time about three months ago, and I went to a rule of law session. This was a friend of mine from Chicago University. He and his colleague, two of them had worked out that it had cost the US government one and a half million dollars to bring the two of them over for six months by the time they'd costed in their security, their transport, their accommodation, their salaries. And he was working on a very important issue, which was corruption. Right? Somebody had realized that there's a lot of corruption in the Afghan government and therefore a huge program had been set up, multi-hundred million dollar program in order to eliminate corruption. And sitting in front of him were the capo di tutti capi, the top gangsters of the Afghan civil service. About 150 people all there with amazing gold watches on their wrists, happily putting their conference pen in their pocket and nodding as he lectured them. And he was lecturing them on transparent, predictable, and accountable financial processes. And everybody in the room, you could see, was nodding and going, you're absolutely right, transparent, predictable, and accountable financial processes. The problem there being that what was lacking was not a technical assistance program. The problem was not that they lacked a certain kind of technical knowledge. The problem was that they were corrupt. Where do we go with all of this? Well, the problem is the implications of this are, are very dangerous. And, and this is where I think I end up with the British ambassador calling me a snake oil salesman, an ingrate, and a hypocrite. Uh, ingrate because I take money from the, I, I run a charity in Kabul. We take money from the Canadian government. Uh, we take a very small amount of money from the British government. And I seem to be mocking their programs in Afghanistan. Uh, hypocrite because apparently I should know that what I'm proposing is impossible. It's considered to be impossible for two reasons. Firstly, it's considered to be impossible because it would involve acknowledging that there are certain things we can't do. For example, counter-narcotics. Britain decided to become the lead agency on counter-narcotics in Afghanistan at the same time as trying to define through the Department for International Development the competitive, comparative advantage, the economic advantage of Afghanistan. Well, of course, the reality is that the economic advantage of Afghanistan is that it is the only country in the world which is able to grow 93% of the world's heroin and still receive $4 billion a year in international aid. 
So our program uh, last year, and I think we spent just under $100 million last year on our counter narcotics program, ended up with the total area under cultivation increasing by 54% between 2006 and 2007. Ditto with fighting the Taliban, right? We're fighting this counterinsurgency campaign. General Petraeus, who was the American commander in Iraq and is now going on to be the CENTCOM commander, has produced this new counterinsurgency manual, which is supposed to draw all the lessons of history and teach people how to do counterinsurgency. According to this manual, we need to control the borders to win a counterinsurgency campaign. Unfortunately, we don't control the borders in Afghanistan. In fact, everybody takes refuge in Pakistan and moves freely between Pakistan and Afghanistan when they wish. According to the counterinsurgency manual, there are supposed to be credible local state institutions. We don't really have credible local state institutions. The same manual implies that we need a very strong support from an indigenous population. I suppose the analogies they would draw might be the support of the Protestant population in Northern Ireland, or maybe they're drawing analogies to the British experience in Malaya in the 1950s, support from sectors of the Malay and Indian population against the communist uprising. This doesn't exist in Afghanistan. Numbers. General Dan McNeil, who until last week was the commander of the NATO forces, claims that counterinsurgency doctrine requires a ratio of one soldier to every 20 members of the population. The population of Afghanistan is currently 26 million. This would be over a million soldiers. We have 70,000 on the ground. In a recent interview, Dan McNeil suggested that we would need 450,000 soldiers. Now, not only are we not going to get 450,000 soldiers, the likelihood is, as NATO gradually comes to terms with the lack of progress, we will actually, within five years, be down to about 20,000 soldiers. The Dutch are unlikely to remain involved. The Canadians are unlikely to remain involved. The Germans are certainly not going to remain involved. So instead of talking about this counterinsurgency campaign that we hope we might be able to fight, we should instead talk about what we could do with far fewer troops, far less resources. But this is difficult because people will come back and say, surely you're not saying we ought to do nothing about the drugs. Surely you're not saying we ought to do nothing about the Taliban. Surely you're not saying you want to condemn the women of southern Afghanistan to a new dark age. Surely you're not going to appease people who are burning girls' schools. Well, the answer to that is quite brutal, which is that ought implies can. Right? We don't have a moral obligation to do what we can't do. In this case, it simply means saying, what's your plan? How are you going to eliminate drugs? How are you going to ensure that you defeat the Taliban? If you don't have that plan, then it's no good simply saying, well, it's a very important thing to do and we should keep pretending we're doing it. And the second elephant in the room, the second problem with this whole discussion, is, of course, our relationship with the United States. Essentially, I think what policymakers are saying to me is, look, this is all very well. You know, whether you go to number 10 or you talk to David Cameron's people, you hear the same thing. This is all very well. I'm sure you're right that this is all a waste of time in Afghanistan. Unfortunately, uh, we would break the North Atlantic Alliance if we tried to change our policy. Britain is not there unilaterally. We work as part of this huge partnership, which includes 10 Bahrainis, uh, 54 Mongolians, and 110 Estonians. Right? And that's actually quite revealing, because I was in Estonia in Tartu 
recently at a conference on Afghanistan. 320 uh, people at the conference, including the deputy head of NATO and a lot of four-star generals, of whom three were Afghans. Uh, and I think they were almost the only native English speakers in the room because they'd all grown up in California. <laughs> and as this conference continued for two days and you heard everybody talking about the current buzzwords in Afghanistan, the comprehensive approach, the three Ds, which turn out to be defense, diplomacy, and development, I began to wonder why is Estonia in Afghanistan? You know, they kept talking about 9-11 and the terrorist threats and global instability. But obviously, Afghanistan is not a prime threat to Estonia. Estonia is in Afghanistan because Estonia wishes to be a good NATO partner, partly because they're worried about their relationship with Russia, and they wish the support of the United States. And the question, I suppose, for Britain and probably for Holland and for Canada is, are we not to Estonia? So I want to open this up to questions, and I'd love to get some comeback, because I think that this pathology, this basic problem where we have fixed ourselves in a slightly meaningless situation, a situation which makes no sense in terms of our global strategic priorities. Right? We've, we've got so many troops, so much money. We've got the largest British embassy in the world now in Afghanistan, this country of 26 million people uh, a country where 70% of the population is illiterate, which is defined by UN indicators as being one of the poorest countries in the world. And it doesn't quite make sense in terms of the 20-year horizon. I mean, if we're interested in terrorism, Pakistan is probably more important. If we're worried about regional stability, I don't know. Egypt or even Lebanon are probably more important than Afghanistan. If we're worried about poverty, Africa's more important. We turn out to be there because politicians are unable to articulate an argument for withdrawal. It seems to be less risky to keep pretending to try to do something, keep the troops on the ground, even increase the number of troops, so that nobody could say, how did you manage to step away and leave this horrible place that's producing 93% of the world's heroin, on the one hand, and secondly, because of some, I hope, mistaken conception of how much freedom we have to change the policy agenda of the United States. Thank you all very much indeed. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. <laughs>